All right, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I hope you've all had a chance to help yourself to food. Um, if at the end of proceedings you remain hungry, I believe there's plenty left, so um, help yourself afterwards or take it with you to feed those more, more, more needy. Um, my name is Nick Bisley, and I'm from La Trobe Asia, and um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to our final event for the year. Um, and we're really pleased that to cap off what's been a very busy year for us, uh, we are hosting the Melbourne launch for Nicole Curato's extraordinarily swift and, and yet extraordinarily good uh, book on Duterte, the Duterte Reader, uh, which has been on a kind of caravan around the country. Um, and last stop, though, in Melbourne, but by no means um, the, 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 the sort of end of the story, I think, in terms of the discussion about Duterte. Uh, those of you unfamiliar with Nicole, she's a DECRA, so it's the Discovery Early Career Researcher Award, funded by the ARC Fellow, based at the University of Canberra, uh, based in the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Governance. It seems to change its name on a sort of quarterly basis, no. uh, with slightly different names every time I look it up. Uh, and uh, what we're going to do this afternoon is have a bit of a conversation about Duterte, about the book, um, both in terms of what's in the book, but also what we've learned about Duterte and his government since kind of 18 months, or nearly, not quite, but nearly 18 months uh, have passed. Talk about some of the, the issues that are in the book and, that, um, and some of the issues that they have anticipated. Talk a little bit about where Duterte may be taking the Philippines uh, and then open it up to questions and comments um, from you. But it's really going to be a sort of informal conversation. And I think whilst we're talking, don't feel free to interrupt us um, if, if you wish with polite, respectful interruption. But, but if you want to have a clarification, because I think we do want this to be a conversation that's not just between the two of us, but I think a conversation with, with everyone in the room. Um, most people here, I think, are, are people who watch the Philippines closely. Um, the Philippines is, I think, one of Southeast Asia, if not the region as a whole's most important countries, um, it's, whether it's its population, its growing economy, uh, um, its place in the sort of uh, changing strategic balance that's a big claimant in the South China Sea. It's the country that took China uh, to, to the Hague uh, over the disputes in, in that sea. And yet, we very rarely see or hear from the Philippines, and you have to make a bit of an effort to, to pursue Philippines politics if you're outside the Philippines. Um, that was, I guess, until Duterte showed up. Uh, and Duterte had, like a lot of the kind of uh, zeitgeist, you know, sort of 2016 zeitgeist populist authoritarian types, they had a kind of car crash quality about their politics, which means that there's a sort of almost innate newsworthiness to almost anything that they do because of its the sense with which it broke from the norms, in some cases was, out, you know, was, was outright distasteful in terms of what was being said or what was being done. Um, so one, I guess, upside from, from Duterte at least is that you know, he's brought the Philippines to the centre of mind um, for people beyond those who I think are specifically interested uh, in the Philippines more, more generally. Um, I think to begin, I mean, the, his election, for those who, didn't, who weren't watching closely, um, in some respects, the, the election of Duterte was kind of shocking. It was almost, you, you know, in any other year other than 2016, you would have thought this was just an impossibility that someone with that kind of background, that kind of persona, who said and behaved in that kind of way would never be elected. And yet in 2016, it seemed like it was almost inevitable that there was a kind of um, you know, force of nature that was dragging him into the presidency. One of the key themes of the book seems to be that even though he seems to break the mould in some respects, 
Duterte also seems to fit a bit of a pattern of presidential politics um, in in uh, the Philippines. Um, what's uh, perhaps start with that thought or that theme, which is to what extent does Duterte represent continuity with sort of presidential politics in the Philippines, and to what extent does he represent a kind of break from the past, a sort of new a new face, if you like. Right. I think my answer to that question will really change now because if you asked me this question a year ago or a day after the elections, I would really say it's a disruption. It was a disruption in the sense that this is a man coming from Mindanao, the first president from Mindanao, which is the southern Philippines, the part of the country that has always been forgotten, um, stigmatized as a conflict-torn area. Then suddenly you have this mayor who has a really, really good track record of transforming the, the murder capital of the country to a peace and order paradise, suddenly becoming the president of the Philippines. So to that extent, a year ago there was, or when he was elected almost two years ago, there was really this euphoria that, you know, this is a big disruption from the elite democracy uh, that the Philippines has in place since 1986. But now if you ask me two years later, it feels like he neatly fits, actually, the pattern of presidential politics in the Philippines. Um, one of the Philippine studies scholars that I closely follow is Mark Thompson, and he argues that the patterns of presidential politics in the Philippines is usually just a pendulum swing between a reformist and a populist. And after um, Benigno Aquino's term, who is portraying himself as a reformist, it seems like it's inevitable that we shift again to a populist. Um, others would also say that the Philippines would only elect two types of president, an oligarch or a despot, right? <laughs> so in that sense, Duterte just really neatly fits in one of the options that are made available to the country. But I argue now that he appears to represent the resilient patterns of Philippine politics is if we observe the kinds of policies that he championed, if we look at the kinds of um, discourse that he puts forward, it's really not that different. Let's strip away Duterte's language from the sexism and the rhetoric. And if we analyze all the policy options he puts on the table, they're not particularly different. So for example, if we look at the economic policy, um, it's still very much anchored on previous trade agreements. But apart from that, even if he's claiming to be a socialist, it's still very much um, driven by foreign investment. There are no claims to, let's say, building a national manufacturing industry, but instead his economic policy suggests that they want to have big ticket infrastructure projects um, funded by China, a lot of them, or diversified funding sources with Japan and Korea, um, and that supposedly will jumpstart the economy. Uh, when it comes to the debates about social issues on the drug war, for example, um, these are in a way a rehash of the policies offered by previous um, government officials, except that he remained true to his word when he said he will kill people, and in fact, people have been dying. But I think the, the biggest um, manifestation of the continuity uh, with Duterte is his incapacity to forge peace agreements that is one of the biggest promises that he's had in the campaign, that this is a man, in a way like Trump, right? He knows how to make deals. He knows how to talk to enemies of the state. And he did that beautifully, um, in a way, in, in Davao, that he was able to deliver. But with a recent collapse of the talks with the, um, with, with the New People's Army, um, the, the the, the conflict in southern Philippines, in Marawi, it feels like a lot of these peace agreements are also starting to be in a precarious position. So in a way, there is this um, 
increasing recognition that the problems, the insurmountable, insurmountable problems that the country has are the same problems that Duterte seems to be incapable of, of rising above from. Yeah, it's the, the, Davao, yeah, the mayor of Davao bringing the Davao experience to Manila, I think we've mentioned previously that it, it, to me it seems to be quite a strong parallel with um, Narendra Modi. So Modi sort of presented himself to the Indian electorate saying, what I did in Gujarat I can do to the country as a whole. And as we've seen, um, and if any of you were able to come when Adam Roberts was here in September talking about India, you know, the, the conclusion so far is, no, you can't. You know, that, that it's, a, it's a different story. Now, India is on a much larger scale in the Philippines, but this, the, the parallels are not dissimilar, which is it's one thing to, to run a city. It's something quite different to run a big, complex society and to, to deliver on that. Where, where else, I think, do you, do you see, because I think a couple of times in the book it's discussed the sort of Davao model or to mm. try to take Davao to, to the country. Where else, apart from the, 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 on the, um, uh, the conflict resolution side, where else has he tried to sort of do what he did in Davao nationally and it's right. working and or not? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like when we do a reading of all of Duterte's pronouncement, the telos is always peace and order. <laughs> Everything ends in peace and order, or and that's really another term for the drug war, right? Get rid of society of all the addicts, of all criminals, then economic development will follow. And I think that's very much part um, of the Davao narrative, um, that part of his success story is the claim that he was able to um, clean the streets of these pushers, these criminals, um, as well as the communist insurgents, the Islamic insurgents. He was able to, in a way, forge a compromise. And that accounts for really the, the booming of the economy of Davao City. And indeed, it's one of the most progressive um, cities in the country. It ranks well with competitiveness indices. Um, so in a way, he's trying to um, project that on a national level. Although, of course, there's now um, an increasing recognition that you can't really carry out a drug war with the same police force that was not able to reform itself throughout, um, throughout decades, right? So in a way, um, the argument I put forward in the book and in my other work is that you can't expect the same institution that has been corrupt, that hasn't been trained, for example, to, to collect evidence and file cases, an institution that has very poor access to legal services. How do you expect this institution to, to fight a war properly. So in a way, in the book, one of the most interesting chapters by Sheila Coronel, so she's the dean of the Columbia School of Journalism, she really tried to understand the institution of, of the Philippine National Police. And in a way, that chapter is a very sympathetic chapter, at least that's how I read it. It's a sympathetic chapter to the police because it's, it's an institution that's easily demonized. It's the institution that is on the media, that is, you know, that kills people, um, in, in random police operations without filing cases. Uh, but Sheila Coronel's argument in the chapter is that, well, how do you expect the police to fight? If you look at the war on drugs, it's a low-tech war. It's fought with a th 38 caliber with a packing tape to bind people's heads and a cardboard because that's the only kind of policing that an institution under strain mm -hmm. can perform. So again, the argument there is institutions are bigger than the strong man, right? The strong man can only do so much. Which is a useful sort of step back from Duterte himself, and I think one of the interesting things that the book does is to say, okay, here to to produce in fairly short order. I mean, it came out very very promptly, but to say, um, you know, let's let's try to look at the bigger picture, the bigger sweep of of Philippines political social history to see where he came from and where he's going, and I think that sort of speaks a bit to some of the questions that's, that that have puzzled many with this 
around the world when they look at the rise of authoritarian or sort of proto-authoritarian leaders, which is can the system, can the institutions tame the authoritarian impulses? And of course, people were very worried about Trump and was was Trump going to be able to to be the, not just a norm breaker electorally, but be a norm breaker in terms of institutions. Mm. So far, not so much. Right. Um, the sense in the book seems also to be that the underlying institutional structures, whether they be bureaucratic or the mm. broader institutions of, of Philippine society, are stronger than any one man. Do you think that's that that's an accurate depiction or, or a fair reflection? Right. I, I absolutely agree. I mean. When we wrote the book, we capped it on the first six months of the Duterte regime, right? And much has happened since then. At that point, the, the intellectual curiosity at the moment is how do populists win? But now the intellectual curiosity is how do populists govern, which I guess goes right at the heart of your questions. How do populists like Duterte, who promised so many things, um, actually put those promises into practice? What kinds of institutional configurations um, can he offer? And I think what you said, Nick, about how these institutions are, in a cer- to a certain extent, very resilient. Um, so even if a populist leader like Duterte attempts to subvert those institutions, they will still be very much present. So for example, one of his main policies or advocacies, even before he started running for president, was to have a federal system of government. The narrative is if we have a federal system of government, then uh, provinces from the south will actually get more funding, therefore have greater autonomy with how they run their their affairs. Uh, And I think it was just a couple of days ago when a a group of academics and a group of uh, public servants, all of them male, all of them senior male (laughs) academics, wrote a draft constitution or a draft for federalism. it doesn't really address all of the issues underlying governance structures at the moment. So for example, if we shift to a federal system of government, will that necessarily challenge local power brokers that has defined local politics for a long time? Will that, for example, um, challenge warlords who have their own armies, (laughs) private armies, that has really compromised the basic function of the state, which is to have a legitimate monopoly of force. So federalism doesn't necessarily address that. And I think that's one of the debates that's going on at the moment, that Duterte is using all of his political capital to restructure the system of governance without necessarily telling us what kinds of problems it solves and how it can actually do that. But it, it is his big populist agenda without really... Um, a clear a clear sense of, of of the specificities of how this will move forward. Because yeah, one of the criticisms um, of him has been, you know, this sort of mayoral presidency, and with right. the kind of you know all of the backhanded, you know, you're a small town guy and you don't quite get how this whole thing works. But if you get a little deeper into the critique of the sort of mayoral presidency. Um, it, it seems partly to sort of not quite, you know, you're not quite grappling with the scale of the task or the scale of the institutions and the bureaucracy. Um, is that criticism? I mean, where, where do you stand on the sort of critique of the mayoral presidency? Do you think it's a reason? It's a it's a f- accurate depiction of what he's doing, or is it a sort of cheap shot? 
Yeah, I think it's a cheap shot in a way because it's um, the, the way that discourse is actually framed is coming from your standard liberal Manila elite who critiques this small town mayor who can't even put his polo shirt correctly. You know, it's, it's this man who would sing a ballad to Donald Trump, which is really disparaged in a way in the Philippines. Yeah, that's what local town mayors do. So it's easy to disparage him on that regard. But I think he has a sense of the enormity of the task. I think what I'm worried about here would be the kind of uh, precise policy direction that he, wants, mm. that he wants to put forward. Because the challenge there is if there is no clear policy direction on the agenda, you leave people who are unelected to run the show, the cabinet, um, the um, yeah, unelected representatives to kind of set uh, the agenda because there's no clear agenda from the top. And in a way, the clearest agenda item that he's put forward has to do with the war on drugs. But when it comes to economic policies, then he left that to his standard economic ministers, which for some investors actually, okay, maybe that's a good thing because there's really no rupture, right? These are the same macroeconomic fundamentals that they will maintain. Um, uh, that is more or less a legacy of the previous um, regime. So I don't think the, the small town mayor critique is necessarily fair, although I, I do want to get your insight on this as well in terms of how he performed as you know, the, the leader of the, ASEAN, of the ASEAN summit, because locally the conversation was that you know, it's a bit um, embarrassing. I mean, the Filipino concept of shame is always very prominent. Like it's very embarrassing that your president acts this way when you're head of ASEAN, when you sing, and when you sing a, a ballad to Donald Trump and say, I did this under the orders of the Commander-in-Chief of the United States. Uh, and all of these other you know, little mistakes, um, uh, fighting with Justin Trudeau, you know, who fights Trudeau, right? But, Sensible people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I, I, I don't know how I, it's received internationally. Yeah, I have to say, I think the, this, the sense um, was that after the, you know, the ASEAN Gala and then the East Asia Summit was actually one of relief. And it's partly a function of where expectations were, right. which was that expectations were so low, both, I think, not just Trump, but, but, but particularly Duterte, you know, anything could have happened. Right. Um, and concerns were everything from the, at, the, at the low level, like would, would it all happen and, and would all of the kind of choreography occur, would the photos get, you know, would, would things happen in the way they ought to happen right. up to the, you know, the East Asia Summit involves people sitting around in a big room and they each sit there and read out a scripted comment for 12 to 15 minutes. Now, Trump skipped that. Um, now, people were worried about what might happen then, but Duterte kind of read his, and everyone right. was... That was the... What's he... Because he could, you know, go off script and yeah. do yeah. all sorts of things. And so there was a sense that if the, the expectations were sufficiently moderate that, you know, if, if all we ended up with is, was a slightly embarrassing karaoke evening and, the, right. uh, you know, the Canadians get their feathers ruffled, whew, that's a that's a good result. But right. I think it's... That tells you a bit about where uh, people were at in terms of what they were anticipating out of this thing. And right. I think the, the view, the broader ASEAN view had been, um, you know, last year was in Laos. And so everyone was like, okay, not much is going to happen at Laos. The fact that it even occurs in Laos is, right. is a kind of good tick. Um, Manila was going to be consolidation and then we'll move it forward. And then Duterte got elected. And so I thought, okay. The ball's been pushed down. Now, next year it's in Singapore. So right. that's, okay. you know, will be, be, be situation normal. But I think, um, I think that the, the bigger issue that, that, you know, foreign policy types were looking at was the Duterte, Xi Jinping, Trump mm. triangle and which way, how he was going to position himself in that. And I, and I think that the coming out of it, 
you didn't see any significant movement one way or the other, which again was probably seen as on, on balance not a bad thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. So you didn't get a decisive sort of tilt towards China, right. which is what the sort of liberally minded were concerned, he, he, which is certainly where he's been taking his foreign policy. Um, and, you, and if anything, if you're, if you're someone who wants to see the Philippines remain on the American side of the ledger, then ballads to Trump are a you know, good right. result. You know, the yeah. price, and you know, the price for doing business in international politics today is you have to leave your self sense of dignity at the door. You know? <laughs> ask, ask Malcolm Turnbull about you know, things you never dreamt you'd be doing, which is telling Donald Trump how wonderful he is. You know, it's, You're right. it's, yeah. an, it's an awful fact, but, but sycophancy, you know, it's, it's, like, it's kind of pre-modern in a way. So <laughs> sycophancy is the norm. But, um, but I think, yeah, expectations were, were not right. especially high. Because one of the, um, how do you say that, sympathetic interpretations for, for Duterte's um, approach to foreign policy is how, you're right, with all the, um, how do you, what's, what's the proper word, with all the surprising things he said internationally, it really put the spotlight on the Philippines. So in a way, the United States is now paying attention, whereas before it's just assumed that the Philippines is a good U.S. ally. Mm -hmm. And now the, you know, the pronouncement um, by Duterte that we are now severing our ties with the United States kind of caught that attention. The closer relationship with China as well kind of, some would interpret this as brilliance behind mm -hmm. this, you know, a strong man who really knows how to uh, play his cards well in international relations. But of course, the critics would say, no, he's just really mad, <laughs> right? So I am not formally trained to read these things. So I, I'm, I'm not Trust sure me, what it th exactly Those who are means. don't know how to read it either. But, <laughs> but it is, they but, end up with body language. I think yeah. he looks very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, but, but the, the, the thing is that, I mean, the, the standard, the, te the textbook tells you that at times of great power, growing great power rivalry, which is now, um, countries like the Philippines, like Australia and others, They've, your, your relative position in the game increases if you can sh shift your position between the poles and mm. play each other, not necessarily play each other off against one another, but to be a loyal ally that's always there unquestionably right. is actually not a smart play. Right. Um, so now whether, whether that means that's what's driven Duterte, mm. we don't, we don't yeah, know. Yeah, we never but, know. Yeah. But certainly um, there is... I mean, to say Beijing and, and uh, Washington are courting Manila is probably overstating the, the fact, but there is an awareness that the Philippines is in play, if mm. you want to use that term, right. uh, in a way that would not have occurred had, um, had Duterte not, not been right. elected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I wanted to get back to the, the phrase, I, I, one of the phrases I like most in the book is, the, is Dutertismo, which right. I'm sure is not the first time it's been used, but, right. but, but the sense that there is a uh, there is an an, an, an ismo, a, a a larger kind of ideology or or mm. something beyond the man. Right. Um, do you think there is? I mean, is is Duterteismo not uh, makes for a good chapter heading and a good yeah. throwaway line? But is there is there something to this, mm -hmm. um, or is it the sort of social scientists' tendency <laughs> and desire to find an ism? Or an ideology right, where, yeah. where there may not be. But it has to be the same level as Peronism, right? Or Chavismo. <laughs> Chavi right? Well, that's, a, you know, that's right. the thing. It's like Thatcherism. I mean, the, right. I used to teach British politics in the UK when I was doing my graduate studies, and the standard essay question is is, is Thatcher, you know, define Thatcherism, or was Thatcherism real, or what is Thatcherism? Right. To which the answer is always yeah. <laughs> kind of not the. What, May what Margaret Thatcher did is Thatcherism. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's, that's actually a fair point. So we, we got uh, the term Dutertismo from actually my sociology professor, uh, Randy David. At that time, he was writing it. He was talking about uh, the rhetorical style of Duterte um, in the sense that it's all very um, visual, spectacular. You know, it's like a very um, 
the word I think he uses was sensuous. It's a sensuous experience, you know. It, it appeals to the visceral. Mm. So at that at that point, it kind of meant that. But now, if we reflect on it, in a way, at least the way I interpret Duterteismo is that it's really a break from the EDSA system, what we call the EDSA system, which really is a reference to the 1986 revolution uh, that ousted the Marcos dictatorship. And I think that's a big deal because the year Duterte won was the 30th anniversary of the revolution. And the way I interpret it is to make a reference to kind of a, a pre-midlife crisis in a way of a democracy, right? It's a moment when people start taking stock of what the democratic life of the nation has been and what kinds of benefits the nation has reaped from that kind of democratic system where democracy really has just been reduced to a mechanism for inter-elite competition. So basically there's an argument that I also agree with that the EDSA system, the people power system, is really a restoration of elite democracy. And Duterte in a way um, is a disruption, is a disruption in that system because he's the first president who after the ouster of Marcos 30 years ago would blatantly say, I think he's the best president ever. He's the first president who would say, actually the martial law was a good time, or actually I want to impose martial law again. It is, he's the first president who didn't really celebrate the anniversary of the revolution compared to all other mainstream politicians in the past who would really try to boost their credentials as participants of the revolution. This is the first president who distanced, distanced himself from that legacy. And I think that matters because first, that has implication to how the, na the nation imagines itself. How does the nation imagine its relationship with an ousted dictator? And one of Duterte's, I think his first campaign promise that he fulfilled was to move Ferdinand Marcos's corpse in a museum in his hometown to a hero cemetery in Manila. That was a big deal, very emotional for martial law activists. So I think that nostalgia and re-legitimization of the martial law narrative is very much part of Dutertismo. But I think the trouble with Dutertismo as a concept is we know what it doesn't stand for or what it doesn't like. We don't really know what it likes. Mm. What does it actually want to offer? Um, nationalism is very much part of that narrative, but to what extent um, does that nationalism unfold when it comes to policy? We don't. We don't really know yet. And there's a kind of there's a sort of socialist coloring to it as well. You know, the outsider politics. The right. kind of it's all there, but it seems a bit of a melange. And, and it's a little unfair also because it's early days. You know, that people didn't talk about Thatcherism right. in her eight, eighteen months into her first yeah. term. You know, so it's. But but I think there is a sense that there is a. I mean, uh, there, there does seem to be something about about right. his movement that's bigger than just, you know, Dutertismo is not just what he does. But, yeah. but we'll, you know, this will be the essay question to come in, in, <laughs> in Dirk's Southeast Asian politics class in 18, <laughs> 18 months' time. No, but I, I think, yeah, just in terms of the emerging ideology coming from that, uh, what we can really spot is this very old um, debate as well of authoritarianism versus democracy, but I think it's the standard. It's, it feels very retro, right? Like these are the readings I read as an undergraduate student um, about are there Asian values? Is collectivism more important than individualism? So in a way, he's really building on those narratives of we prize collective rights over individual rights. So peace and order is a collective right. The right to safety is a collective right. Those human rights advocates, they're bleeding heart liberals and they sabotage the country from prosperity because you protect 
criminals, right? So there is that renegotiation of, of our concept of what matters, I think, in a nation that has imagined itself as a liberal nation. He really just exposed, I think, the weaknesses mm. of the liberal democracy that the Philippines claimed to be. You, you, mentioned, you, you mentioned something that, that comes up frequently in the book, but I think particularly in that opening chapter that you write about, on the one hand, um, Duterte is, is a, a sort of big disruption in the Philippines politics, but on the other hand, he perpetuates this sort of elite politics. Um, how do you, you know, could you explain that? Because right. you know, at first glance, it's like, hang on, how can you disrupt and perpetuate right. elite politics? Well, he disrupts elite politics by bringing his own elites back to, or back and new, how do I say that? Old elites that have been out of favor from previous regimes are now back in the fold. Um, he is known to have allied himself with Joseph Estrada, a former president, now mayor of Manila, uh, that has been convicted of plunder. He's allied himself with Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, also a former president, also convicted of plunder, right? And how can that be a disruption if not a disruption of the narrative of the previous regime, but really a continuation of previous narratives of impunity? Um, Initially, we can also say that he's a disruption because for the first time in history, the president, the speaker of the house, the senate president, and now the chair of the commission on elections are all from the south. Symbolically, I think that's very powerful that all your top positions in government are from Mindanao. That really brings pride um, to people who think that they've been forgotten from the national narrative for, for a long time. Um, but when we see how these people from the south behave, they're not much different from how traditional political actors behave, right? So in a way, even the business elites that he brings forth are the same business elites who have benefited from previous regimes. It just so happens that they're from the South. So I think even if the symbolism is something that they really want to celebrate, I think there's more room to push what the symbolism means because if it ends up to be it's not enough that you have people from the South going to Manila if the way they act perpetuates the same elite politics um, that has been the same logic as the Manila um, political elites have performed. Yeah, so it's elite politics with sli very slightly different elites. Right. Or, or last year's elites, or last decade's elites. Exactly. Um, before we open up for questions, one, one of the things that, that's so striking about the the populist sort of proto-authoritarian type that you see in many parts of the world is a kind of the way in which they use a kind of coarsening of politics to their advantage. Right. Um, it may be instinctive, it may mm. be deliberate, some combination of the two, Trump acutely, um, and, and Duterte, his, you know, his vulgarity right. um, is the stuff of legend. Uh, how, do, how do, as a, you know, as a scholar looking at um, a, a practice of a kind of coarsening of, of politics in the public sphere. How is that working in the Philippines? Is it something that people, that, that is going to establish a new coarser public discourse? Mm. Is it something that's just him and when he goes, it'll go? Um, or is it going to change the way the game is played? Right. One of the chapters in the book actually de did um, what he calls a queer reading of Duterte. Right. It's, it's in a way a gendered reading of Duterte's masculinity. And the argument that the chapter puts forward actually is Duterte may be vulgar, he may be offensive for a lot of people, but he's also the man that we know. He's that uh, um, 
one of my favorite populists and scholars actually say, the way you interpret populist is it's that drunk uncle in a dinner party, right? He would say very crass language, he would be very vulgar, but you know he's also the man telling the truth, but just no one wants to talk about it. So in a way he can be interpreted from that lens. But I think what's more interesting for me as someone who's observing public opinion on Duterte is that th there's also a counterpart uh, of, of a coarsening of public discourse, let's say, in online engagements. Um, you see ordinary people using the same vulgar language, threatening journalists who cover Duterte negatively, um, would send private messages and use kind of the similar language. But if you click on their profile, these are normal people, normal people, you know? <laughs> like someone sells secondhand bags and someone posts prayer, what is it, Bible study on Sunday. They're real people and not, not the fake trolling army, which we can also talk about. But I guess um, I wouldn't say we blame Duterte for it, but I think what Duterte exposes is, yeah, the latent, the latent kind of discourses that, we, that we've had, and in a way, um, he's normalized it. And the reception, I think, is even more revealing than Duterte. So when Duterte makes a joke about raping a dead Australian missionary and people laugh, then you know that the joke resonates. I was in his speech in, a, in front of a mass grave. The mass grave was built for disaster survivors in Typhoon Haiyan in 2013. He made a joke about ogling the vice president's legs because she wears very short skirts. And of course, I told the woman beside me, my God, that's just so sick. And then she just said, he cared enough to be here. No one else cared enough to be here. So there is this negotiation of the vulgarity versus his capacity to care. So I wouldn't judge the coarseness of his language just based on the vulgarity, because sometimes in the coarseness of the language, it gives honor in a way to the frustrations of people. It gives honor to the visceral anger that people have. But to what extent can that address those anger, uh, that anger? We, we have to see. Yeah, and that, and that seems to be something that's very much part of the the populist appeal in, in many parts of the world, that ability to kind of, that vulgarity, if you want to call it that, is what cuts through in some respects that allows them to kind of emote and connect with people who feel like the system doesn't serve them or, or whatever it might be. Right. Um, is he still as popular as he was? Yes. Yeah. But so kill lots of people, it's okay. Right, um, but that's actually the challenge. So if you read uh, the chapter by Ronnie Holmes in the book, so he's one of the top pollsters in the Philippines. His argument actually is, it's not surprising that Duterte is popular because his popularity rating just um, mimics the popularity ratings of all other presidents around the same time in the presidency. So to say that he's such a popular president is also to say, well, all other presidents prior to him, first year in office, maintain that level of popularity. So that's not unique to him. But I guess what's unique to him is precisely what you mentioned, kill everyone, still popular. Mm. But if we unpack the surveys, th there are surveys that also say the public supports his war on drugs, because who wouldn't support a war against drugs? But the public doesn't support the killings. They want, um, drug suspects to be arrested alive. Some are actually, a, a majority I think is also scared that they may be the next victims of these killings. So I would argue that yes, he's still very popular, but the, the, the reasons behind the popularity I think are more complex because if we read this in relation to other surveys, it's not blanket approval mm. to everything that he's doing. All right, that, I think that's an excellent note on which to end. I'm 
really impressed with the, the the book, but also I'm impressed with your wrangling of 19 authors. I've edited a book with 17 authors and have sworn never ever to do it again because it was so painful. So um, that you got 19, I think you said in the preface, all of them said yes, which is also astonishing, um, and that it came out quickly, but also is, is such an engaging read and it covers such a wide terrain of, of the of the kind of social and political life in the Philippines and what's created Duterte and what we can expect from it. So there's a couple of copies left, I think. Cash money's only, I'm afraid. Otherwise, there's a reprint happening soon? Right, yes. Um, yes, we've completely sold out. So our first print run is done. So we've sold 1,500 copies. So we're very happy about that. We've also, if I may share, our very first fake news. So we're very <laughs> proud of that too. Uh, I, 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 was, I was worried that the book or I will personally be attacked by some supporters of the president because the subtitle is Critical Essays on Duterte's Early Presidency. But the fake news is about how the book is expected to be a bestseller by the New York Times because it's about Duterte's biography. So fantastic. <laughs> New York um, Times bestseller. You heard yeah. it here first. So. Watch out, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Well, on that note, please join me in thanking Nicole for her insights into Philippines. Thank you.